Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Adloyd. How do we grieve for someone? How does it change and evolve as we get older? My dad died when I was 15 and it took me many, many years to be able to express what I had gone through. So I decided to create Griefcast, a chance to talk, share and laugh about the weirdness of grief and death. But with comedians, so it's not that depressing, I promise. Each time I talk to a different comedian about their own personal experience of grief as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club, this is a chance to talk about the peculiar human process of death. Welcome to Griefcast. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey Griefsters, hope you're having an okay week. Just a reminder, we have two live events coming up on the 15th of September. We'll be at the London Podcast Festival at King's Place and I'll be joined by Tom Parry, Jenny Bede and Kima Bob, three brilliant comedians who are all about to start performing at the Edinburgh Fringe if you find yourself up there. And on the 26th of September, we'll be at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital. Line up TBC, but it will be cracking, I promise you. That's being organised with the palliative care team, so it should be a really interesting evening as ever we'll be having some cheery chats about death head to our twitter at the griefcast for ticket details or you can head to the king's place website as well this week i'm talking to dr Catherine mannix Catherine is a former palliative care consultant who is also the author of the sunday times bestseller with the end in mind it is an incredible book i can't recommend it enough It deals with the dying side of things rather than the grief side of things, I would say, but it's so interesting and so hopeful and she really, especially if you have death anxiety, I actually found it quite calming, some of the ways she talks about how the body dies and what is actually happening to it. She came in to talk to me about her book, but also we kind of worked out a roadmap for what happens when you die and I found it strangely reassuring. Uh, So here she is talking to me. I hope you enjoy Welcome to Griefcast. I'm here today with former palliative care consultant and writer, Dr. Catherine Mannix. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Managed to get your official title out, but you were just telling me you were 
yeah, you're no longer a palliative care consultant, but that is what you had been doing for a long time, is yeah. that fair to say? so I worked in palliative care for 30 years wow, altogether. Wow, So quite a long track record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when did you sort of stop doing it formally? Um, I stopped seeing patients during 2015, oh, 2016. Wow. okay. And I still did some kind of political organisation of services yeah. work for another year after that. And is that when you wrote the book? So I, I knew I wanted to try and do something about public mm. understanding of dying. Yeah. I didn't quite know what I was going to try and do, but I knew that if I was still working full tilt, you yeah. know, that there just isn't even the space to think about it. So it was a bit of a, a, bit of a chance. Yeah, so that's a big leap to go, OK, yeah, okay let's, do it. So let's check the pension. Can we, you know, <laughs> can we pay the mortgage? Yeah, OK, right. Let's jump. Amazing. And we said the book is called With the End in Mind, How to Live and Die Well. It's a Sunday Times bestseller and it's, it's a really interesting book. And it's funny because obviously doing the grief cast, it's been recommended to me for a long time. And as I was oh. saying to you before... I have a lot of books about death sent to me and I'm always like, it's always a bit of me that's like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> and actually, it's, I think, I hope this isn't offensive, it's, it reminds me of the Julius Samuels grief works in that I think it's a really useful one to have in your, in your grief library. In that I think, you know, sometimes I say to people, oh, you might not need this one, this is very specific for this subject, but this I think everybody can benefit from this because it's just lots of lovely essays about different ways of dying and approaching death and different forms of it. I just think it's, it's one of those ones that I wouldn't be like, oh, you don't have to be in the club to read this yeah. really this is for everybody was that your intention well yes of? I guess I wrote it because we're all in that club yes well as we yeah. say every week we're all gonna die yeah. <laughs> and so the reason that I tried to do something about public understanding of dying was that I kept meeting people who still were surprised <laughs> and oh, yeah this is and my you think, absolute bugbear like when people are surprised it's incredible um, isn't it and 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 sometimes um, there was a particular family who came into the emergency department of the, ho the hospital where I was working because I've done hospital-based palliative care right. for most of the last 10 years of my career. And that's particularly interesting because so many different diagnoses and so many different types of colleagues try and work yeah, alongside. Yeah. But this particular family had brought in a very, very elderly parent who clearly was on the brink of dying. Mm. And when you look through his medical list, he had so many illnesses, you know, so many bits that didn't work. The miracle was that he wasn't Still already yeah, dead, yeah. actually. <laughs> um, and that didn't quite feel like the right way to phrase the question to the <laughs> That's family. That's not how you work professionally. No, no, not really. Guys, the fact that he's here, congratulations yeah, this yeah. time. But that was apparent. Yeah. Um, so I'm saying to his, well, actually, his little boys. Mm. But oh. his little boys are, in fact, in their 70s. Yes, I just read an essay. Is this in the book? It this is. One? It's one of the yeah, stories in I the book. Yeah, I just think I just read that on the tube and way here. And you described the fact that he was older than, you know, your father, but suddenly he looked like a teenager. And obviously, someone in the teenage club, I really felt like, oh, God, perhaps you always feel like that. Because to me, it's like, I was a teenager. Yes. I thought, oh, yeah, even if you're 70, perhaps you do feel like... I think maybe you do, that it's your dad. Yeah, it's your dad. And you're like, what? Yeah. No, he can't yeah. be... And this amazing conversation then of, you know, your dad's been, I probably use the local expression, a creaking gate right. for some time <laughs> now. And so I wonder what he told you he would want if he was ever so sick that he could die. 
and they just look really perplexed you know that kind of rabbit in the headlights thing and their mum was with them and and she actually was a bit more gathered in fact than they were and they said oh we never discussed it and then actually what was really heartbreaking was then one of them started to just kind of tear up and he said you know dad once tried to talk to me about this and I said oh dad you know don't be so maudlin and I wish I'd listened Mm. and then he started to cry and then his brother wanted to make him feel better so there's that thing you know how guys want to Mm. be kind and emotional but in a completely not emotional sort of way Mm. so he kind of stood next to me kind of patted his arm sideways (laughs) and said well do you know Dad did try to talk to me about making attorney documents so that mum wouldn't be left making all of the decisions if he mm. got really sick. And I said, Dad, you're going to live forever. And there, there was this kind of wow. resounding echo. And it was, it was his wife who said, it's time to let him go. He's talked to me about this. It's so interesting to me because I think, why, what was happening that those sons refused? Like, that's interesting that both brothers felt like that. Now, mm. that, that to me, obviously, I'm so nosy. I'm like, well, why did they collectively go, he's never going to die? Like, I wonder in his parent, like something in his parenting. Mm. But then it's funny because he did try and talk to them. Yeah. So you go, he so, tried well, to I've, say, I'm not superhuman. It's really interesting. And I've come across it lots of times. These very elderly people, because, mm. of course, now we're living to be much older. Yeah. We yeah. actually live to be much frailer. We collect a few more diseases along the way yeah. before we get sick enough to die. Yeah, you don't get knocked out at 35. No. So commonly these not days. So commonly. Some people very much do. But mm. yeah, in the way that the... Yeah, whatever the average living age is. It's in its 80s, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so, so there's all sorts of different ways that we can approach the very mm. end of life. Um, and we have this cohort of very elderly people who are the last people who remember what normal dying was like from when it used to happen yeah, at home. Yeah. So they know what to expect. And they're trying to engage the first generation that didn't see it in that conversation. Wow, is that what you think it is? Really I think that's what's going two on. Generations. And then there's that's the thing is, if you survive to that yeah. age, the next generation is actually adult. Yeah, yeah. So those things that we did when we were little and it was so naughty that we couldn't tell mum, but you could, you know, you could tell Auntie Joan or you mm. could tell Nana. It comes back now as a quid pro quo. So now... I'm advising elderly people who can't engage their next generation, whether it's their children or their nephews and nieces in those conversations, wow. go to their kids because oh they're old enough to have this conversation. Yeah, yes. It's, one it's not gen- like going to a six-year-old. You're like, you could be going to a 25-year-old. Yeah, absolutely. And they're one generation removed. So that kind of wow. closeness of the relationship, it may be a very loving relationship, yeah. but it's not that um, relying on that person for my integrity relationship that we have with our parents it's so interesting obviously i i feel like i'm looking at like a petri dish because um because it's not my life Mm. because i walked through that door at age 15 and have lived with it for 20 something years um and so i like we've said this on the show before like when i meet someone who's in their like 40s and they go i've never really experienced death i'm like who are you? Like, where have you been? Like, I find those people fascinating because I'm like, how? But of course they exist. And of course, like, there are people on the scale who haven't and have got to age and have elderly or have both, you know, there's people my age who still have their grandparents. I'm like, wow. Like, it's just, that's not my experience of it. And I I sometimes not feel grateful, that's the wrong word, but I, I do feel like, well, you've got to take positives. I feel like glad that, 
I'm at least prepared for these things. That's yeah. the one, one of the benefits of being very young when you join the club is that you 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 realise death is something that's going to happen to everybody. You realise it can come at any moment. That obviously spawns a whole other world of problems of death anxiety and mm. all that stuff. But it does mean that um, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Like, I'm not surprised when people die. I'm like, oh, right, yeah, they died. Okay. Like, yeah. unless it's obviously something very shocking and completely out of the blue... But yeah, and I, unfortunately, I'm more of a person as soon as someone's like, oh, they've gone in for the you know, treatment. I'm like, oh, okay. Right. Hmm. So has someone, talk, has someone spoken to them about it? And they're like, oh, that's very negative, Carrot. I'm like, no, it's not. No. So, you're, so you are part of the change that yeah. I want to see in the world. <laughs> you know, those people who, first of all, very comfortably use yeah. words like dead and dying yes, and death yeah. uh, instead of all of those euphemisms about passing and passing away. And I think it's it's important to say that you know, when you're grieving, when it's your grief, mm. you just have to use the language that gets you through. Oh, yeah, of and I course, think people do yeah. change their language yeah. out of out of tenderness for themselves and the people around them at that difficult time. But I think when we're in our professional role, mm. you know, so the media drive me nuts with their passing and passing away. Yeah, I just you wrote something really nice, but I wonder if I can find it. Actually, it was in one of your like the end chapters about because we've talked about this on the show. Oh, where is it? Oh, here we go. Um, we've talked about this on the show, about the euphemisms. Mm. And I never... I find them irritating, but I think you put very clearly why it's irritating. And um, so you put, Reclaiming the language of illness and dying enables us to have simple, unambiguous conversations about death, allowing each other to discuss dying rather than treating the D words as magic ciphers that may cause harm merely by being spoken aloud, can support a dying person and anticipating the last part of their living. And there was something about that made me go, oh, that's why it annoys me. Yeah. <laughs> because it's always annoyed me. But I think you, you just put very clearly of like, the more we use them, the more we, we can't talk about it before we need, before mm. the problem has arisen, which is what I'm always banging yeah, yeah. on about. Like have these conversations before people are uh, off their heads on chemotherapy or morphine and they can't talk to you. And um, yeah, you're right. Because I do think, you know, especially if it's your faith or... Or, you know, if it comforts you, if you want to, if, if saying dying is just too much for you. But I agree with you, talking about it beforehand when you're not saying, you're not saying to the per, the bereaved family, he's dead, you know. Mm-hmm. But like, you're right, in the media and conversations, we should be using it. And I've said this before on the show that for years I would say, oh, I was 15 when my dad died. I know you heard this, my therapist started discussing with me that I don't say he's dead. And I just, because I was someone okay, who was like, yeah. yeah, I was like, no, no, I'm cool with it. I'm comfortable. I was 15 when he died. And she was like, you you use it like he's still doing something. Like it's a very active way of using it. And I thought, yeah. And it really, I think last year, she's not making me, but she started introducing the idea of saying my dad's dead. And it was really hard. Mm. It was really, really hard because it made me realize quite how much I hadn't quite 100% accepted it. I was about ninety percent, I'd say, but I definitely found that changing saying that, "Oh, my yeah. dad's dead," gave me a little bit more. It was painful, but gave me more freedom. So it was like, uh, okay, I am accepting that somewhere yeah. in a bit of my brain. Another bit just went, "Yeah, he is dead," and that's well, like, that's where you're and at. That's such a good illustration of the power of language, yeah. even when we haven't realised yeah. for ourselves, isn't it? Yeah, and I would say, you know, I would always happily tell people that he died. I had no problem saying oh, I was 15 when he died and I would say it and I wouldn't feel anything because it was like it was like saying um, oh he's gone skiing 
like yes. that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was an event. When it, it was, was an there. event when mm-hmm. I was fifteen. Yeah, That's yeah. the thing. That we went on holiday when I was fifteen, and then he died. Like it's just like, yeah, it's very removed. But saying he's dead really made me go. Yeah, he's dead. <laughs> like, that's what yeah. actually what's happened. And you're right, the language of the media. And I suppose sometimes it's always hidden in like, oh, well, we're being sensitive. But I find passed away just so weird because mm. it's just passed to what? I always think that's a very old-fashioned way of saying it. But you sort of argue that actually the ver- the oldest generation don't use that language. Mm. They are more likely to say died and dead because they grew up with it. Yeah. Whereas in my head, it's like, oh, that's what old people say because they're trying to be soft on it. But I thought, oh, she's right. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the like... You said the generation below that. I think it, it is, and I think we've got it from American television. Ah, I think it's you, you know you know they completely ruined Halloween after ET, and they're, <laughs> they're, and they're you know redescribing the language of dying and death ah. and mortality as well. Well, I do think that when we talk about um, how long do they have, which again I know you talk about like this impossible mm. question, and I've talked about it on the show before that my mum we weren't given anything like that. They said to us, we can't say, we can't say how long he mm. has. But then I meet other people who go, oh, we were told six months and they had three. And I'm like, how come you got told? But again, I think this American television idea of like, well, I should be, I should be told. Well, it's really, really interesting. So I, I came into palliative care kind of sideways from oncology. Mm. So I've been in that clinic where people are saying, okay, so tell me, doc, how long? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the right answer is... We just don't know yeah. because we've got graphs that tell us about survival data, yeah. but we don't know which dot on the graph you are. You are, yeah. But people push and they push and they push. And then eventually, because they are distressed, you're distressed, the waiting room is full, you're not actually progressing with the consultation mm. because they're still on the how long question. Doctors, I think, get backed into a place where they'll say well look I can't really say precisely but Mm. like that one you just quoted they said six months now actually they may very well have said somewhere between four and six months or they may have said between six and twelve months. But you hear what you want to hear So some people hear the shortest time and Mm. are terrified and some people hear the longest time say okay so I'm going to be one of them So like you said the power of language As soon as you put numbers on it you've changed the game completely So what I try to do is to say to people listen I can understand why you want to know mm. how long of course I understand why you want to know how long because you know think about your mum she's got these yeah, kids yeah. she's got your GCSEs on the horizon <laughs> you know um, my life Catherine this is wonderful <laughs> you know she's she's trying to hold it all together and she's doing this in and out of the hospice thing yeah um and how is she to do any planning mm. so what we very often try and do in palliative care it may very well be that she's had a conversation like this with somebody is to say, listen, I can't tell you how long, but I'll tell you how we know when time is getting short. See, that's definitely didn't happen. My mum is, this is one thing she's still cross about, is that um, they wouldn't say how long, but they were very positive. Mm. So that's what she found really hard. Is they were like, well, you never know. We don't say, you know, we don't say like there's, you know, it's dying. We don't say or something. It was something like she said, she was like, he's going to die. And they said, well, we we don't want to use that. You know, we don't know what can happen. And my mum was like, you've just told me he's got a tumour wrapping around his pancreas. Like, surely, you know, and she was looking at him being like, I mean, it doesn't look, my mum was very practical and was like, it doesn't look great. And her remembrance of it, which, you know might be, you know, (laughs) blurred by, Mm. you know, all sorts of things, is that this consultant was just like, well, let's not be negative. Let's not put a, you know, and perhaps he was trying to not be backed into a corner. And the other thing we don't know is if he'd had a conversation with my dad. 
So we just don't know if he, my dad had said, don't tell them. Yeah. That's the other problem. Yeah. So then my mum was left feeling very like, this is really weird because I think he's dying. The doctor won't say he's dying. And my dad was like, I'm fine and I'm going to beat mm. this. So then you're left with this sort of very confusing triangle of like, okay. Because I think the way you just described it is wonderful because that's what you want to hear. You want someone to acknowledge, yes, of course you want to know, of course you want to put a timeline in it. You're not crazy for asking that question. Mm. I think that sometimes you feel in that doctor's room of like, oh, I've asked the wrong thing, that I'm being told off. And to be heard, like I'm not saying you're crazy, but we can look for these signs and that's how it's going to tell us. That's like a map, Mm. which is what you're asking for. You're asking for the wrong map. That's the trouble. You're like, give me the number map. And you're like, here's the visual map. This is actually what you need. But yeah, I, I mean, Catherine, it sounds like you're very good at your job. Because <laughs> that, that sounds like a lovely way to say it, which I, I don't think we had. Which, if, like you said, it really... I'm always getting told off by my mum for swearing on the show, but it fucks things up. Like, if you're not given that clear map, you know, I think yeah. you do then feel angry afterwards because you're like, what? What happened? Yeah. That's not what we thought was going to happen. Yeah, and actually having a map, even if you're not quite sure where you are on it. Yeah, yeah. That's a great metaphor that kind of trying to orientate yourself which way up is the map which direction are we going and that idea that actually there are peaks and troughs aren't there and you'll remember this from your dad's illness times Mm. when actually people are feeling reasonably well and they can get stuff done and they get really organized and then times when they just feel really really tired and weary Mm. and you know the the duvets up around the chin um and then everybody thinks oh this is it and then oh Hang on, I know, and then like they're having a good day, they're having a good day, yeah. and everyone's like, "Is does this mean they're cured?" Like yeah. you just, you're like, because they're acting really well, mm-hmm. and it's strange. And yeah. I think, like you said, because it's not discussed and and it's you know hidden from view so much, people just aren't. Yeah, they just don't know what's happening. They mm-hmm. just so they that American Hollywood idea of people rallying and surviving and all of this stuff starts leaking into your head because you want it and I think you mentioned this in the book as well because of course you want a happy ending of course Mm. you do but then this is what I think your work is so important of like why do you want the happy like we're all going to die. Yeah. Why is no one prepared for this? Yeah. It's crazy. And, it, and it's about aiming for a different sort of satisfactory yeah. ending, isn't it? So it's about aiming for safe bereavement for for the people who love us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's about finishing off the loose ends as best we can. Mm. It's about that self-evaluation that everybody who knows their death is approaching goes through of what have I been worth? Mm. Why am I here? What's it been about? And some people do that through a kind of religious construct. Have I I obeyed the precepts of the faith that I have? Um, But increasingly we're in a secular society and it's, you know, I had a lady who who had um, a Conservative Party card in her handbag that was really, really curly and it looked like it had been hand printed, you know, so maybe from the 1930s, something like that. Um, But how good a Conservative she'd been was, was a really important part of... Yeah, who, who she, she was. was and her identity. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. So people are trying to work all of that out and they need some kind of time frame 
for that. Yeah. So, I mean, would, it, would it be helpful for us to talk about some of the places on the map? Would that be a, yes, a handy thing to yeah, do? Yeah, let's do it, Catherine. Let's, let's so, make a map. <laughs> so let's have a little think. So, so you're given this piece of paper and it's blank mm. and it's going to kind of magically ink itself in like a beautiful Tolkien map. Beautiful. Yeah. Harry Potter Tolkien, whatever your yeah. fancy of choice. I, 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 think, yeah, I think it's going to probably be kind of that lovely brown old yep. ink. Yeah. <laughs> so to start off with, the thing that we tell people to look out for is what our levels of energy are like yeah so when we're in our health and vigor um so you are considerably younger than i am <laughs> um, expecting uh, a normal life expectancy you don't see much decline or any in your health and vigor apart from when you've been kept awake all night <laughs> by your gorgeous daughter I, de- I, was, yeah. I was gonna say you're being very kind i've definitely noticed an extreme lack of health and vigor since i had a child <laughs> my knees creak everything hurts and i'm very tired but uh, yeah i know what you mean yeah 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 and so i'm older and i notice that for example my running times are getting slower yeah and it doesn't matter how hard i work i can't be as fast as i used to be yeah but they're not diving off the edge of a cliff what they're showing me is that from one decade to the next i don't have the vigor that i had which tells me on my map that my life expectancy is still measurable in decades which is, you know, quite consoling. That's nice. You know, that's, that's, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because I haven't yet developed, as far as I know, the condition or conditions that will be the thing that finishes me off. I mean, you're talking to someone with extreme death anxiety, so I find your calmness about this really interesting. <laughs> so I'm like, really, you haven't like thought about which one's going to kill you, or like. Oh well, of course we oh, right, all okay. think about. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so you know, I've I've had a career of death watching. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. I was so, going to say, Catherine. Wow, that must be that's very relaxed. Okay, <laughs> so you know, there are some diseases that I think, yeah, I'd rather have this one than yeah, that one. But I know what you mean. Yeah. Yes, you haven't potentially developed the thing that hmm. may kill you. Yeah. Okay, but when that time comes, when somebody has got that illness. Yeah. What's quite interesting is that even though the illnesses might be completely different systems of the body, so Mm. whether you've got, you know, widely metastatic breast cancer or you've got heart failure or your liver is packing up, as life is starting to get shorter, there are the symptoms of the illness Mm. which need to be addressed and palliated because if you can't reverse the illness, then you've got to somehow manage the symptoms yeah, manage of it them, yeah. and then there's the symptom of the impact of the illness on us which is the pathway to dying that's right, going okay. across our map yeah and what we find is that their energy levels start to drop mm. and now they start to be able to see that actually from one year to the next they haven't got the energy that mm. they had and that might be because your heart isn't isn't as good as it was or it might be because actually you're nearly a hundred and everything's a bit Creaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything is tired yeah, at a hundred. Everything is tired. So <laughs> now you're starting to see a change from one year to the next. You know that you're now measuring in years mm. rather than in decades. Maybe enough years to make a decade, but not decades and decades. Mm. And it's that pattern. So as you move through this map, there will come a time when actually there's an obvious difference from month to month. Yeah, and from week to week. And the sleeping you talk about a lot of just yeah constantly sleeping and so the sleeping thing is really interesting mm. isn't it because it's part of the way animals bodies work mm. that when we're not well we sleep mm. that's a normal process of energy recharging that mm. our bodies have and it starts to play out again as we're approaching the end of our lives we're just more tired and we just sleep more and that's fine now the difficulty then is that some people have been told 
oh, well, you know, don't worry about dying because you won't be awake when it happens. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. oh, my God. <laughs> right, I am never going to sleep again. Yeah. You're like, you're like a meerkat, and I'm awake, <laughs> look at me, I'm awake, I'm not sleeping. So now they get really knackered because they're not taking the sleep that they want. They get really anxious because some kind-hearted person has given them almost the right information. Yeah, yeah. But not the right information. Yeah. So we need to think about... What is it that happens at the end of the, our lives that stops us from being awake? Is it falling asleep? Mm. No, it's not. So if you're tired enough to feel that you need a sleep, you're well enough to have a snooze and wake up on the other side yeah, of it. That's a yeah. safe thing to do. I see. So if you have the sort of mental capacity to be like, oh, I'm so tired, I need to sleep, that is a sign that... Yeah, you need to sleep. Everything's still working in a way. It's when, yeah, when well, you slip it's away, because, it's different. yes. So one of the things that will start to happen at the weariness, progressing week by week mm. stage, and certainly by the day by day stage, is that during some of those periods of no longer being awake, we've dipped into unconsciousness. We're not just asleep. Yes. Now, it doesn't yeah. look any different. You yeah. wouldn't know any different. And the person it happens to doesn't know any different they wake up so oh, i've had a lovely sleep and you think yeah that's good but actually we know auntie mavis came to visit you while you were asleep before she goes to australia mm. and we tried like mad to wake you up and we couldn't wow so actually you weren't just asleep you yeah. were unconscious and we know that but you who who it's happened to you didn't even notice you just say you've had a nice sleep wow so we don't notice mm. unconsciousness overcoming us it doesn't feel the same yeah and towards the very end of somebody's life what we see is this kind of sleep wake cycle is getting very short very short periods of being awake very long periods of being asleep and then becoming more and more deeply unconscious until in the, at the very end of somebody's life they are just unconscious they're not just asleep mm. they're unconscious they're in a coma and that's their brain switched off so now the only bit that's still working is the body. Is the, is the, the only bit the brain that's still working is the breathing, the bit oh, that I manages see, yeah, the yeah. breathing. So breathing's a really interesting thing. Mm. You know, good for you. <laughs> um, because most of the time, even though breathing is automatic and we're not thinking about it, we've got everybody thinking about their breathing. I know, now, you just right? literally yeah, maybe yeah. go, oh my God, I'm, I'm, yeah, really so I'm thinking body. about my yeah, breathing. No. Um, Everyone chill about your breathing, you're just doing it, don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> so. We don't think about it, but we manage it. So if you're trying to, you know, listen to your podcast, yeah. you'll manage your breathing so that it doesn't make breath noises in your throat so you can hear. Yeah, yeah particularly yeah. if you've got earbuds in, because oh, you yeah. do hear your throat more then, don't yeah. you? Um, and when we're speaking, we're taking a deep enough breath to say a sensible phrase, mm. and then there's a pause, and then we take the next breath, and we're managing it. And we know people who've got breathless diseases one of the difficulties they have is that they start to have to take a breath in the middle of oh, yeah, saying yeah, something. Yeah. And then we start to feel breathless with them. Yeah, and yeah. then we start to change our breathing as well. God. So normally we're not thinking about our breathing. Mm. When we become unconscious, all of that subliminal breath control just stops and mm. the brain runs our breathing on an automatic cycle. Fascinating, isn't it? Like, yeah. oh my god, it's so like a computer as well. It is, it it's astonishing because like, it's so yeah. reproducible from one person mm. to the next. It's really, really interesting. That's when your Mac gets really hot, 
and then uh-huh. it just switches the fan on. Yeah. And just fans the battery and you're like, what's that noise? It's like, it's, like, it's just cooling it down. It knows what it's doing. Yes, and your, and your brain is, is, is mm. doing something like that. So actually what we're doing is we're watching a process where even though it will be individual from person to person, mm. the overarching process is the same. So anybody who's ever had a baby yeah, yeah. has had that experience of, you know, your labour mm. with your child was yours and yours alone. It wasn't like anybody else's. But your midwife watched the same process that she'd seen yeah. hundreds or thousands of times. And we talk about this on the show all the time of... Which I know, you know, obviously it's frustrating if you haven't had a child. I don't mean to exclude you at all. But it is a similar process mm. of getting someone out. Yeah. Basically getting someone out and getting someone in. Like, yeah, it's um, it's a similar vibe and the way a midwife looks at you. And you can say what you like to a midwife. And they're mm. like, mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, no, I think, why, why is she looking at me like that? That's, I think I'm, okay. And the same with the nurses, you know, when you're like, oh, dad looks all right today. And they're like. Mm-hmm. Why did they all look at each other like that? Yeah. What's that? What's that about? He's not okay, is he? Yeah. But but you you very quietly hear it in the back of your head. You like shut up because <laughs> you you can't you know you at that point in time don't need to hear it. But yeah, it's um it's so interesting because like you said it is completely obviously individual. And obviously we're talking about deaths from illnesses as opposed to like you know being hit by a bus, being hit yeah. by a bus. So yeah, mm. or you know dropping down yeah. dead immediately from a heart attack, which you know obviously can happen this is a very specific when the palliative care team are able to be involved i suppose mm. because sometimes they aren't are they well so just just finishing that bit of the map about yeah, so, so, we're, so we're in that kind of i don't know interesting valley of the funny breathing yeah it's probably worth talking about th- what's in there yeah because are we going to hit <laughs> death rattle valley <laughs> yeah, well i guess we might be going to go mm. there so once your breathing is just automatic it cycles between very deep yeah. And very shallow. Oh, and right. then back to the beginning and round again. And it's also cycling between slow and fast. Mm. And because you're no longer conscious of your body, which is a real kindness if you've had a lot of symptoms, yeah, because you won't yeah. be conscious of those either, you might, for example, not completely relax your vocal cords. So oh, when you're yeah. breathing out, you might make a noise. Mm-hmm. You might be a bit snorry. Yeah. Um, you might make... Mm, yeah. noises now if your family don't know that that means you're deeply unconscious yeah. they'll be going oh oh she's trying to say something mm. oh 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 she's groaning god she's in agony and actually we need to be now really good midwives yeah. you know how the midwife keeps saying you're doing great this is yeah. normal and you think how can this possibly be normal <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that thing of saying this breathing this noise that you can hear your beloved person making this tells me that they're deeply deeply unconscious this is not distress yeah i feel so privileged that my mum i've said this before my mum said i don't know i still don't know how she knew really but my dad was doing this horrible breathing and my brother was like we need to get him a drink we need to get he's not okay and she was like it's just a death rattle yeah, yeah. and she said it so like matter of fact yeah <laughs> me and my brother like literally like all right okay well mum seems to know what this is and i'm so glad that she she wasn't panicked at yeah. all because she absolutely knew he's dying this and is she it. modeled it for you didn't yeah, she she yeah. modeled it your mum sounds absolutely brilliant i love She's it every time good. you talk about her <laughs> yeah love it yeah I don't, but I, I keep meaning to ask her why did how did she know i don't i, I must I remember. yeah you need she to listens mum you have to tell me um because she was very very calm and the noise 
It is scary. It is definitely scary. And I think um, had she been scared, I would have been Mm, fucking terrified. Of course you would. Of course you would. But she was just like, this is what happens when people die. Yeah. I mean, again, coming back to it, the noises you make when you give birth are insane. Like, I have never sounded more like an animal. Yeah. I made some weird noises. Yeah, yeah. And I remember hearing them and thinking, who is doing that? Where's that noise come from? Yeah, Yeah, like... Like, it sounds like a tiger. Mm. Um, everyone's minding a growl now, but it wasn't. It was just like, like they were, uh-huh. yeah, deep primal yeah. noises. And that, when someone is dying, they are making those deep primal noises. But we're so disconnected from the phrase you just used, I thought was interesting. Like, we're so disconnected from the fact that we're animals. Yes. We're so disconnected. Like, no, well, I'm, I'm not. I'm a person. Mm-hmm. So I don't die and make noises and shit myself and piss everywhere. Mm. And like, that's, which is the truth of our bodies, really. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. We hit weird noises, we hit moaning, it sounds like talking, it sounds like yeah. rattling, breathing, yeah. We're yeah. At that and then bit. you can imagine that this cycle, if it gets to the shallow phase but the yeah. quite fast phase then that would sound like panting. You could oh, think that person yeah. was breathless. Trying to get their breath. Yeah. yeah. So it's, re- again, really important to say, oh, yes, I've noticed this noise that your beloved person is making too. Yeah. Let's just talk about what this noise is about. And do you think you can explain that to anybody else who comes in to visit? Wow. And actually, this will go on for a little while and then they'll swap back to that other mm. breathing they were doing. And sometimes there are really long gaps and then a kind of shuddering... <gasps> oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> And then out that again, one. yeah. The gap when everyone's like, they've gone, they've gone, they've gone, they've gone. <gasps> like, they haven't gone. <laughs> yeah. But it's almost like preps you, doesn't it? Because yes. you're sort of like, you're like, oh, it, okay. That really looked like someone just died. Okay, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Yes. Yeah. But you can be sitting, waiting mm. oh, God, for hours yeah. or sometimes for days yeah. without breathing. And so it's really, really important that people understand that this person is deeply unconscious, mm. is way beyond experiencing distress. And then, the, so, the, so the death rattle. Mm. Let's have a little river in our valley just to make <laughs> yeah. a little rattling noise. You imagine the back of our throats is the most sensitive area 
in our body mm. and it's protected by this huge raft of reflexes so that if anything sits in the back of your throat that might obstruct your breathing, mm. you cough, you gag, you vomit, you swallow, you make lots of effort to clear it because yeah, yeah. it's really, really important that you <laughs> yeah. do. And so it's got this huge nerve supply that's any time, you know what it feels like if you've got a bit of a crumb in the back oh, of your throat yeah, or, you know, your tea goes down the <laughs> wrong way. Coffee, yeah. <laughs> so, so there's this thing, which is really interesting watching mm. you doing that, of giving attention to a part of our body and then, yeah. you know, noticing it more. Um, and yet, once we're deeply, deeply unconscious, you know, it's really good evidence that we're not taking any notice of our yeah, bodies yeah. anymore because we will allow a bit of saliva or a bit of phlegm that's come up from the lungs, which you know happens all the time, mm. phlegm comes up from our lungs, and we just swallow it. Yeah, yeah. But now that's not happening, and if it'll just lie there, well, it's not blocking yeah. the, the air tubes. The air's still coming in and out, but now it's bubbling through this fluid, and it makes that clicking, mm. rattling noise. And people go, oh, it's the death rattle. <laughs> yeah, I know. My mum is like... Because she is so, like, uh, he said, Essex, it did sound like some sort of Victorian music hall song was about, like, the death rattles here. I was like, <laughs> OK. Yeah, it does sound It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. But actually, that is a noise that tells you more than anything else tells you yeah. that this person is now no longer conscious of their mm. body. This person is deeply unconscious. They're deeply relaxed. They're actually absolutely safe. Yeah. They're just dying. Which is the thing that's... That's yeah. the hard bit. Yeah. Because if you don't want that to happen, it's, yeah. it, that's what your brain is fighting. Your brain is it like, is. I don't want that to happen, it is. so I'm going to ignore all the things in front of me. <laughs> like, you know. So giving people information isn't going to stop the death from happening. Mm. It isn't going to change the way the death happens. It isn't going to take away the sadness. No. But what it does do is absorb some of the fear. Yeah, and I think it can also help... <laughs> What I like about it, this map we're just doing, is that it gives you the sadness that you're meant to have. Mm -hmm. So you should be sad they're dying, or not should. Maybe you're not, that's fine. But like, if you are sad they're dying, that's that's normal. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to be sad that they're in pain, or that they're in distress. All of these things that get added to your grief, because you're yeah. confused by it. Yeah. And then get mingled in with the actual grief of like, oh, I'm just sad they died. And then it's very confusing to work out what you're sad about. Whereas yeah. if you said, if you have the language and the map of like, that's what's happening, you can be like, oh, okay, I am sad they're dying. That's mm. what I'm actually sad about. Now I can feel those things as opposed to going, oh, they're in distress and I don't know what's happening and I don't know. And are they, should yes. I have done something? Yeah, and that's the thing. Isn't it? Should I do something? Yeah. What should I do? Yeah. You know, I love you enough that I want, I'd rather be going through this myself than yeah. watching you going through it. And I don't know what to do. Mm. And actually... There isn't anything that you need to do. Actually, dying doesn't cause pain. Mm, that's really interesting, isn't, isn't it? It, it yeah. only causes unconsciousness and your breathing to stop. Mm. Now, we're going to die of something and the illness itself might have it might symptoms. Be painful. Yeah, yeah. So getting the symptoms sorted out, maybe in, in kind of the equivalent of the antenatal period, yeah, yeah. you know, you get some consultations with people who are good at managing the symptoms they don't need to stay involved and you know mm. haunting around you they can sort your symptoms out and back off yeah and that's what we do in palliative care you know most people we see we see for a couple of consultations sort out the symptom by now off you go yeah um but sometimes it's complicated and then we need to stay alongside them and i think that's the thing sometimes it's confusing people of like what i understand palliative care is like you are taking away something so that someone can die Hmm. But I mean that 
as in you, they can get on with the dying they're doing. Yeah. But in your head, you're like, but the doctor came and they didn't make it better. Mm. But what they did is perhaps they gave a better painkiller or they moved a pillow or they did this thing. Mm. So then that person relaxed more. So then they died quicker. And yeah. there's a bit of your brain going, I don't know if I want you in here because I think you might make this quicker. And there's a, you know what I mean? There's, mm. Because it's self-protection of yeah. like... Again, because we don't talk about death, we're trying to understand. And it t- I remember they came in one day at the hospital and, um, you know, when they do that thing where they're like sort of trying to get people comfortable. And my mum again knew she was like, they're trying to help him die or they like remove the pillows and stuff. Mm. But again, as a child, me and my brother were like, what are they do- What are they doing? Like, are they killing him? Is this what's happening? And it's very, um, death- I think I've said this before, like my when my brother thought he wanted a drink... And we had, like, that cotton bud with the water, you know, mm. to try and, like, stop the cracked lips. And we were, like, putting on. And I remember Tom saying, like, he need, you know, why are we not feeding him? Like, he must be hungry. Like, and not understanding, no, we're deliberately not feeding them and giving them water. We are removing those things so they can die because they don't need those oh, things anymore. Oh, no, okay, I've got to challenge you oh, there. Oh, please do, because that was okay, my understanding of so it. so I've got to challenge you there. Um, how much do you eat when you've got flu? Oh, I see. Yeah, like? not loads. Yeah. Okay. So we can torture people with food when they're not hungry yeah. because our love says we feed people. But that's what I meant. If like my mum mm. was like, we're not torturing them. Yeah. But me and my brother took it as children of like, oh my god, they're not giving him any food. Like, is that yeah. bad? Yeah. And my mum was like, no, no, he doesn't need mm. food right now. Yeah. But in your head, do you know what I mean? Yes, the way because absolutely. you don't understand what the wise people of the village are doing, you're like, so you brought him to a place where you're not going to feed him or give him water mm. and you're giving him drugs that make him, you know, more unconscious. Yeah. So it can seem like a very frightening... Yeah. It seems like frightening stuff is going on because we don't understand, like, no, no, he's going to die. Yeah. So we have to do these things to We're help him. We're walking alongside. Yeah, yeah. And good palliative care won't shorten life. Yeah, yeah. And no, I'm sorry, I wasn't saying No, no, but, but it is really important because yeah. it's the thing that a lot of people worry about. Yeah, I think that's, especially when I was a teenager, I was yeah. like, are they just, like, not giving him water so he dies mm-hmm. quicker? Like, is that so, what's So if he woke up, they would offer him drinks. Yeah. And actually, if he'd taken quite a lot longer to die, mm. they might even have put a drip under his skin because it's difficult to keep a drip in a vein. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you can put water in under under the skin to help wow. people to be hydrated because if we get really dehydrated, we get twitchy and our muscles yeah, start yeah. start getting twitchy, and that's that's not good. So it's all about everything that's done is about comfort. Yeah. So it doesn't seek to shorten or lengthen mm. the life it's just about are you comfortable enough to get through this next little bit of the day and let's review again and are you comfortable enough to get through yeah. the next little bit of the day and in the meanwhile they're doing mm. these breathing changes yeah you can't eat and drink when you're not protecting your yeah. airway so obviously we give little drops of water on the tongue and yeah. try it so one of the plans that we need to make is you know, when I'm so sick that I'm dying and I need to have mouth care, what's my favourite taste? Oh, wow. um, so do you want water? Do I, I probably have tea? Oh. Um, possibly a light gin and tonic? You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's hard yeah. to know. So, so there are things that we can do that are about comfort. In the meanwhile, they're just doing this kind of changing breathing. And then that thing that you talked about, about the breathing with the gaps... Mm. What's really hard to predict is the is the last breath yeah. because actually it's just another out breath yeah. and there just isn't an in breath afterwards. Now sometimes there's been that kind of shuddering yeah. <gasps> breathing, which is a deeply unconscious thing. So people who've seen that and thought the person was distressed, you know, I hope they'd be comforted mm. to know that they weren't. But sometimes the breathing's been so gentle, so shallow, 
that you walk into a room and you find a family sitting around a person who's already died and they just haven't realised yet because it's been so gentle. So, you know, it's not like that on television soap operas and it's not like that in cinema Mm. because it has to be dramatic because otherwise we get up and put the kettle on and we don't (laughs) watch the telly. Well, also, like, in terms of narrative, you know, as a writer, to defend the writers of the world, like, death is often used as a point in the narrative for something else to happen. Mm. So you use a death to be like, and that's what made that person sitting there get up and do this. Mm. Like you're using it to the same way as you use like their job is this and it's awful. So they do this. But that's not what happens in life. You know, as we know, like the credits don't roll when you want them to. Mm. And so that's, I think, what's confusing is like death gets used as like just a really helpful narrative in the same way that it's helpful that, you know, loads of children's stories have um, kids who don't have parents who Mm. are orphans. That's not people being morbid it's like if there's no parents your child character can do a lot more fun stuff because there's no one going where are you going harry potter and i think that's the thing is like yeah narrative turns and then people go oh that's real it's like no 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 it's somebody trying to make Mm. an interesting story (laughs) like in the way that yeah stories down the pub are often not always Mm. true but interesting absolutely but it's this interesting combination of we've lost contact with watching normal dying as a society so we don't know that we don't know what yeah, normal dying looks yeah. like. We don't know that's a narrative yeah. being used. And then we look at it on the telly or we look at it at the cinema and we think, oh, well, that would be what it's like yeah. then. When, of course, very, very few deaths are like that. Yeah. But you have to have a death like that on Holby City because yeah. that's yeah, because part of the narrative. because you need those two doctors to be so upset that the death was so traumatic. They go outside and then they admit they love each other. Like you're using the death Absolutely. to get those two characters somewhere else. Yeah. You're not you know, yeah. you're not remotely thinking about the death mm-hmm. as a you know as showing the truth of a death because you're like you use death to make other characters do things. I'm going to watch it differently from now on because I've been whinging about <laughs> death on TV for so long. Yeah, That's really yeah. going to make well, me think now. I mean, how do we solve this then, Catherine? How do we solve how do we fight the Hollywood? <laughs> well, I, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? So I had that Mm. transformational experience with that family who hadn't let their dad talk about dying. And I'd seen that, you know, dozens of times. It wasn't the first time I'd ever seen it, but that family stayed in my head. Mm. And I just kept thinking, you know, somebody, somebody's got to do something about the public understanding of dying. Somebody, yeah, somebody. (laughs) Someone should Somebody should really. (laughs) um, And uh, gradually. (laughs) It's me. (laughs) Oh, it's going to be me, isn't it? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Because yeah. I was like, oh, I'd love to hear a podcast where people talked about death. And I was like, oh, I suppose I could. I mean, I could do that because I've talked about it lots. And I know how to, I feel like I know how to talk uh-huh. about it in an easy way. Yeah, I suppose no one would listen. <laughs> What's my next yeah. But um, And now look. Now yeah, look what you've got us both into. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Turns yeah. out people, well, with your book as well, turns out people are, it's not just us weirdos. I think that's the thing is you think, well, it's just me. Yeah. Because it happened to me young and because you work in palliative care, you think, oh, it's probably just us who are interested. Yeah. But it's not. It's a, it's a much bigger conversation. And it's fantastic, isn't it? So when you look at the audience that you've got for Griefcast, mm. which is just fantastic, and the feedback that you get. And the feedback I've had from this book oh, has imagine, been yeah. absolutely amazing and sometimes really heartbreaking. Mm. So I've had wonderful letters from bereaved people saying, um, I thought that my beloved person died in agony Mm. um one lady wrote to me said you know it's it's four and a half years since my mum died and i've been in therapy with ptsd wow and i've finished your book tonight and i've realized that actually what happened to my mum was what you're describing that she was deeply unconscious that she wasn't distressed wow 
and I've slept through the night for the first time in four oh. and a half years. And just it was so, you know, I I cry yeah. quite regularly. Oh yeah. At Same. The letters, <laughs> the that emails I get from people—it's just yeah. astonishing. I know because you start. I think that's interesting because we're both people who talk about it. What I get from my emails is I realise there's people who don't, and the one that really stuck with me is someone said, "Oh, I thought I was having a breakdown. I thought I was absolutely. This was mm. the end. I was having a nervous breakdown. I'd never recover. I've listened to your show and I realised, oh, I'm grieving. I didn't know this wow. is what it was like." And I felt so like, oh my God, you poor, th- you yes. poor thing. Because if you didn't know that's what grief is, you would think, well, this is it. My life is over. I'm, yeah. I've completely lost my shit. I'll oh. never be able to get out of bed again. And that's it. And what a lonely place so to be. So lonely. With no name for and the I process. just thought, fuck, because, you know, I was brought up talking about it and it wasn't, it was fine to cry about it and stuff. I was like, geez, like, I would be so sad if I didn't think it was just grief. At least I've always been able to think when I felt shit, like, oh, you know, it's because I'm grieving and I'm still dealing with it and that's hard and it was a big thing. And it doesn't mean I'm okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you still have to go through it. But to have the words for it. So, yeah, I do think this book is incredible that it gives people that little hidden behind the scenes insight. Like, oh, no, that's really normal. Oh, okay. Okay, so this can be normal. And then I've had letters... People's courage is, is immense. Mm. So sick people, people who know that they have an illness that is going to kill them, mm. have read this book. Wow. It, how, how astonishing. So wonderful letter from a lady last autumn saying, um, this will be my last Christmas. I've got end-stage breast cancer. Mm. Um, so I've bought copies of your book for my three young adult children. Wow. And when they've read it, we're going to sit down and do my death planning together. I just think that is amazing. But in fact, what she's doing is the equivalent of what we try to do in a clinic or when we go and visit patients at home or see them in the hospital, which is give them a narrative Mm. that they can understand and make their own and that they can explain to their families. So when I talk to people about, okay, so let's talk about what dying is actually going to be like and talk about that kind of diminishing energy changing breathing and eventual very gentle outbreath. how we will explain to your family if the breathing sounds disconcerting mm. what it actually means how we'll keep checking that actually you know they come and say come and look at mum I think she's in agony well she probably isn't mm. but I'm still gonna have to check because actually maybe something else has happened yeah of course and, and stuff I, you happened, know yeah. so so we're going to be keeping checking on you making sure that you remain safe mm. and this idea of dying safely I think is is really important but giving people that narrative the first thing they do is they relax yeah. and then almost everybody then says can you explain that to my family? I don't think that's what they're expecting. Yeah, because no one knows. No one fucking yeah. knows. Yeah. It's and it's just... because we don't see it. Yeah. And the more we know that that is how it's going to be, mm. the less we will believe that you have to be in a hospital yeah. for that to happen, or even in a hospice mm. for that to happen. This is something that, provided you've got the help that you need and not everybody's living in the bosom of a, yeah, a helpful yeah. family or set of friends Yeah, and anymore. depending on your level of sickness. My, yeah. my dad couldn't have stayed at home, but both my mother-in-law and father-in-law died at, at, in their house. Yeah. You know, it is, it's so dependent on many things. I know some people want to and can't, but it yeah. isn't, again, like a home birth, it isn't impossible. Yeah. It is an option out there. Yeah. I think that's so important for, yeah, for people to, to have that information. I have a bag that I got from this... Um, 
a, a podcasting I did in Denmark, in Denmark, and the quote on it is: one side it's Danish, one side it's English, and it said, "All sorrows can be born if they are turned into a narrative." It's Karen Blixem, mm. and when I saw it, I was like, "Oh, I mean, that's the grief cast back." <laughs> like, and I think it's obviously as a writer, like I'm obsessed with narrative, and your parent or dying or your beloved person dying, whoever it is is so painful but mm. if you can be given a narrative to understand what's happening and i think people sometimes underestimate how fundamentally we process things in stories mm. like even if you're someone who hates books and hates films you still process things in terms of this happened then this happened mm. and that's why they did that like that makes sense to us as as yeah. animals and i think what you're doing you know this book and, and the work you obviously were doing before it's just explaining to people like this is this is the narrative of a death. This is yeah. what it looks like. And we said, and if you don't have that, it makes that sorrow so much more painful. Mm. It makes it so much more painful. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the power of, no, it's, it's of so, a story. It's so important. And also around a deathbed, helping the people who love the dying mm. person to start to construct yeah. the narrative and it being the same narrative and Julia Samuel made the same point didn't she when she was talking to you so to be coming into the room and saying so how's your dad doing Mm. Uh, have you been here all night has he looked as comfortable as this all night well done you guys you're doing a great job Um, is anybody worried that he's uncomfortable Um, do you need me to check anything while we're here okay so this breathing that he's doing now it's that pattern do you remember Mm. we talked about that pattern does anybody want to check anything out um so you're doing you're doing absolutely great, and you haven't had any breakfast. So it looks to me as though there's probably time for some of you to go and get breakfast while some of you stay here, mm. and that becomes a family story of. So yeah, we were there all night, and in the morning, the nurse or the doctor came in, and they said he was he was looking all right, and that we were doing a great job. And mm. uh, we so you know we did a great job. We made that and safe that's so space. So important. It's so important to mm. not feel like you you fucked up. Yeah. Because again, that's I think it's really hard to grieve mm. if you feel like you did something Absolutely. wrong at the end. Absolutely, because that's all you get stuck there. You're like, we did something wrong, and you mm. can't move through. Oh, but I'm sad they're gone, and I, this is how my life is going. Because you're just like, but we did it wrong, and, and you stop the film at that point, yeah, don't you? You just yeah. sit there with the mistake and try and rewind yeah. it so you can do it properly yeah. next time. And, and you can't. And that's when you said you get into that PTSD of reliving yeah. things, and it, yeah. and obviously it's you know not everyone gets this experience. I don't want people to feel bad, like. Some people die in extremely traumatic ways and you just don't get the chance to have this. You know, that is mm. important to be said. But, but you know, equally, if you, if you can understand what's happening, mm. I think it's just, it's such a, a gift. It's such mm. a gift to, like, properly know. So I just want to, I don't want us to miss the end of the map. Did we get to the end of the map? Did they so, die? <laughs> I think we followed somebody through their breathing changing. Yeah. And I think we got to a moment where they breathed out and then, oh, they didn't breathe in again. Yeah. And there's no sudden rush of pain at the end or very rarely that kind of sit up and tell you where the treasure's buried. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Sadly, that doesn't happen the very often. gold is in the... Yeah. yeah. And actually, often people are very surprised. And the other thing that's really important in this map is that far more often than can happen by chance, that last breath out mm. happens in the only 30 seconds in the last three weeks when there's been nobody in the room. We have this so many times. So yeah. I'd like to read this. I have had so many guests say, I was there, I was there, I waited, I waited, left the room. And I'm now convinced that is when they it, decide to do it's it. It's a thing. They, it's don't, a thing. they don't want that person to be there. So and they are waiting for that person to leave. So we really recognise this. Anybody who's experienced in palliative yeah. care, we've just seen it 
so yeah. so very often. And we've also seen people who should have been dead a month ago oh, yeah. and aren't yet. And then the phone course comes to say that the exam has been passed mm. or the grandchild has been born or whatever it is. And within hours or yeah. less, the person has died. So we don't understand what the science behind any of this is, mm. but we seem to be able to have a bit more control than it's we can so understand. It's so weird, because I, I think like 50% of people mm. have said, you know, I just left the room for a second, and I, or I didn't get there in time, or I'd mm. been there all day, and, and then I, you know... And then the, you get the other side of people who want them there, who's like, yeah, we were there, We ha- I mm. literally was like right next to them. And we were right there with my dad, and I think he would have wanted that. But I think now I'm a parent... I completely see why you might not want them to see that last moment. Yeah. Like you might want to just go out of the world by yourself. Mm. You know, how you kind of arrived in the world yeah. as well. And I think it's really hard because people feel so guilty yes. about leaving. I've had so many guests feel like, oh, I can't believe I left the room. And I'm like, mm. but you, there's so many of you who left the room. Yes. And then they've died. I'm now absolutely convinced something is happening. Yeah, it's a thing. Mm. It's definitely a thing. And we don't understand it. Yeah. Again, and I think that's the thing, mm. isn't it? It's hard because there's no, like, a doctor can't say, this is, they will wait till you've left the room. And then they will do this. But I agree with you, having spent mm. so many times talking about it. And emails as well. I've had so many emails and people feel so dreadful that they chose to go for a cup of tea at that point. Oh, like, how selfish of me. And I'm like, no, like... If they loved you as much as you love them, they would have been like, go and get that fucking cup of tea. Go and have it. Like, I'm I'm going anyway. You don't need... I think, again, that's very Hollywood because the... We're putting pressure on the last moment, the last breath being the most important breath Mm. rather than what you're talking about of being aware that the cycling of those shallow and deep breathing is actually as important Mm. as the full stop. Yeah. But... We pay attention to the end of a story. Yeah, yeah, we absolutely do. Because that's normally when things mm. change. Yeah. <laughs> so our brains go, that's important because the end of the story is what makes all the characters leave the room and change and everything's changed. But yeah, that isn't that isn't the most important breath no, you need to isn't. be there for. And, and you, all of those very, very important breaths for yeah. days and hours and months and years and a lifetime yeah, together for yeah. people. So what would your advice be for people, um, perhaps if they, you know, they haven't read the book, which they should, about preparing so that because I still having done even done this show I'm still slightly confused about what plans you can do because mm. there's certain things you can do where you can say okay I don't want this intervention I don't like yeah. it's the most basic thing you can do just talk to your family or your loved ones so I think that there are there's kind of medical planning yes and then there's I was going to say family planning but I don't mean family planning do I but there's kind of social social care planning. yeah like yeah. practical planning yeah. Right? yeah so first of all we repeatedly see people wanting to say the same things, and this, this is talked about in the book, that towards the end of their lives, people who realise that the end of their life is coming mm. particularly want to thank people. They mm. want to express appreciation to people. They want to settle difficulties that they've had either by saying they're sorry to people or telling people not to worry about mm. offences. Or sometimes they want to say, you know, you... I've never forgiven you for that, which <laughs> is which is unusual, but, but yeah. sometimes that happens. But most importantly of all, that thing of telling people that we love them. Mm. Um, and sometimes people leave it too late. Mm. I'm always saying, yeah. I'm always obsessed, like, do not wait. Yeah. You don't know what 
unconscious state is going to hit, you're not going to get the Hollywood moment. No, so say it. Say it today and then you can Mm. say it again tomorrow. So there's those important Mm. messages. And then there's actually understanding, you know, if a time comes when I can't really help with making the decisions about my care anymore, there are some basic principles that I think you need to know about, Mm. about me. So it might be that... I'm a religious person and I would want the rabbi or the imam or the vicar to come if it looked like I was Mm. dying. Or it might be that I'm an anti-religious person and don't let any bloody religious person in the room with me at all or I'll come back and haunt you. (laughs) Um, But just, you know, so if they ask, shall we get the chaplain? Oh, I don't know. We never really talked about it. Well, let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I talked to somebody... Because that's another common thing that happens that people, they'll say, oh, my parent wasn't very religious, but at the end, they suddenly did want to speak to a chaplain. So I think that's, again, like, don't... You can't always rely on going, oh, they don't really go to church anymore. They might still be religious somewhere. Yes, absolutely. And I don't think church and religion... No. ...and spirituality are as closely related as we think they are. Or they used to be. I think, yeah, just because someone isn't going every Sunday and doing the flowers doesn't mean they might not still want to talk to someone at the end. And I think people can have a very rich spiritual life that might not be deeply religious, but chaplains are really good at working around and with those concerns. I didn't know that. So... There's that kind of thing. There's, would I prefer to be at home? Mm. Would I prefer to be... So I have people say, well, I'll go to my daughter's house. Yeah, okay. Would that be the daughter with four children and a baby (laughs) on the way? Yeah. In a steep house with great big stairs and the toilet not on the same level as Mm. the bedrooms? Is that really practical? Mm. So, you know, we need to start to say, what is it about being at your daughter's house? Is it the house or is it the people around you and that safe space is actually not about the bed you're in I don't think I see yeah it's about the people around you and the atmosphere that you can create there if you've got an illness where there's a risk that you could have a reversible cardiac Mm -hmm. arrest so you've got a heart problem oh yes you talked about this book yes oh my god the stress like you're dying for one thing and someone's like but what about your heart do you want us to sort that out Yeah. yeah so it causes so much mayhem So originally, um, cardiac resuscitation, that kind of external Mm. cardiac massage thing, was just to keep somebody from dying long enough that you could get them to a place where they could give electric shocks and restart the heart if it was restartable. Now you learn it as first aid in the Boy Scouts and it's going to be introduced into the school curriculum. But actually, most people who collapse and die haven't had a cardiac arrest. We're not going to save their lives Mm. by doing that. But because we haven't got the kit out and high street Mm. we don't know whether or not so we'll have a go but what about if you're known already to be so sick that you're dying you wouldn't want somebody to mistake your last breath going through the map we've just talked about as a cardiac arrest arrest and rush in push your family aside jump up and down on your chest break your ribs you know that's just you know that's not ideal and now because paramedics might come to your house and they don't know that you've got this huge backstory so you need to have this certificate this do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation certificate just so that you're allowed to die in peace and i I kind of feel that we've got things Mm. a bit muddled up really but that's the way it is so somebody needs to have the conversation with you yeah um and it's a really good idea if your family also are in on that conversation So you talked before about drugs that make you lose consciousness. So 
mostly when we use painkillers that are based on morphine mm. is, is the usual one and it's family of drugs. Um, if you've got pain and you use those sorts of painkillers to mop up the pain, it doesn't actually diminish people's consciousness. Mm. So the fact that they're losing consciousness is part of that other process that we've been talking about. I did about. not know that. I always thought, well, they took that morphine and then they went to sleep pretty quick. Okay, so, so what's quite possible is that the, the reason that you've not become more unconscious than mm, you are... you're in so much pain. ...is that your pain or your breathlessness, because morphine's really mm. good for both of those symptoms, is keeping you awake. So enough morphine to take the symptom oh, yeah. away might also allow you now to tip into the level of unconsciousness that you would have had if you hadn't had that pain. Yeah, of course, of course. Now, and, you, and actually, there's a lot of there's a couple of chapters about that, like that restlessness mm -hmm. from, which seems like again like wellness because yes. they're agitated and they're up and they're talking and and. I know it just made me think of my mother-in-law as she was just in an incredible amount of pain mm. and it took such a long time to get the, the, the pain right, the yeah. pain right. Mm. because also, I don't think my husband might be saying that she was such a, didn't want to be a fuss and didn't want to be a problem. Yeah. So she really was trying to be like, no, it's fine, it's fine. And to the point when it was like so clearly it wasn't and it's fine really anymore. Not fine. Yeah. And it is really interesting, isn't it? So you will have people writing saying, well, it's all very fine, you describing this mm. lovely map of yeah, yeah, yeah. gentle dying, but it wasn't yeah. like that when my beloved person exactly, died. And the thing is, of course, most babies, most labours are uncomplicated, mm. and at the end of it, there's a well baby or babies, and there's a well mum, and yeah, there's some stitches. Absolutely not my experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there will be occasions yeah. when babies die during mm. childbirth, babies get damaged during childbirth, mums bleed a lot mm. after childbirth, mums die after childbirth, and they're the stories that we remember. Mm. And there are deaths that are difficult, where it's been difficult all the way through the illness to manage the symptoms, either because the symptoms are very challenging mm. or because the person has wanted to not make a fuss or that there is some suffering that's going on that's actually emotional, yeah. But it's focusing on the, the physical, physical pain, yeah, symptoms, yeah. and that's not to that's not to blame the person for having their symptoms. No, it's just to no. say we're really complicated beings, yeah. and of course those are the stories that we remember. Those are the stories that lead to complaints mm. in hospitals that get into the newspapers. Kevin, thank you so much for talking to me. It's it's such a good book and I think you've done an amazing thing that because I feel like, you know, as we said, I think we said before we started recording, like I deal so much with grief and I deal with so much with people who have like, right, you've gone through the door, you've closed the door, they're dead, welcome, this is mm. where we are. That it's so nice to have something that's like, before you go through the door, <laughs> you could read this and this might be helpful. It's so nice to have anything that helps because yeah. it's such a traumatic thing that we all have to go through. That anything that's helpful is, is is a good thing. I think this so this book is a snapshot into the palliative care world, mm. really. So, people who are at home, people who are in hospitals, some people in hospices. Uh, it does give some insights into the awful humour of a palliative care <laughs> service as well. Um, but what I really hope is that what it's doing is giving you thirty experiences mm. of being within a family. Because uh, they're just stories, aren't yeah. they? It's not clever. It's not medical. Yeah, it's all. narratives, Catherine, and that is what we can mm. all relate to. And so at the end of it, you've got a kind of spectrum of views of the ways that people can be different mm. from each other. And yet 
underneath it, there's a pattern of similarity where you start to say, well, actually, I can see what's what bit of it is just the human condition, mm. the process of dying, and then how it expresses itself differently in different people at different ages, of uh, different beliefs and cultures at a different time in their lives. Um, and I just want people to know more about normal dying mm. in order to be less afraid and to be confident that if their normal dying gets kind of skewed by difficult mm. symptoms, having the symptom control specialists who happen to be called palliative care come along and try and help to sort it out, you're not obliged to die after you've seen this. You know, why <laughs> yeah, in fact yeah. allowed to survive afterwards. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And sometimes we use the hospice beds because the symptom management is really, really difficult for this yeah. person and you want the person surrounded by and nursed by nurses yeah, who are yeah. specialists in symptom management. And it's great when you have somebody arriving uh, to be a new patient at the hospice here. Can I give you a cup of tea in the living room because your bed isn't ready yet because we're still waiting for the lady who was in it to finish packing and get picked up by her grandson to go home. And it's them going... Oh, she didn't die. But yeah. aren't you supposed to go out in the box? Yeah. Yeah, no, actually fewer than half of the people who were admitted to hospices... Wow. actually die wow. because most of them are not coming in to die they're yeah, coming in to have a good old sort out lady wrote to me to say because mm. I kept going oh I want you in the hospice that is not good news mm. and she was like actually please stop making hospices scary and I was like I stand corrected. Well, do you know, the Americans did a really good study because, you know, we, we all worry about American-style yeah, medicine yeah. and it's coming. Um, and they did this really nice study where um, people with new lung cancer in lots of different places mm. around the States and some other places uh, were all asked if they would enter this study. And the study was that they were just going to have the usual treatment they would have mm. for lung cancer. But if they, if when their magic envelope was opened, they had you know, a green sheet instead of a red sheet, they also were going to have the palliative care team work with them. Wow. So they weren't going to get anything different. Mm. They were just going to get something extra. So they did this study and they looked at hundreds of people. And what they found was that the people who had the treatment as usual, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, mm. see your oncologist, they got the same results that they usually got they got the same life expectancy they generally as they got sicker got more and more treatment they generally uh, were brought into hospital more often they tended to die in hospital and usually on an intensive care unit because in america you keep doing more and more and yeah. more to delay the moment of dying what was interesting was the comparison with the other group who were seeing the same oncology teams mm. being offered the same treatments but also seeing palliative care specialists and they had less anti-cancer treatment. They withdrew from anti-cancer treatment sooner. They stopped escalating their wow. treatments. They were less likely to come into hospital. They were less likely to go into an intensive care unit. So their overall care bundle cost less, mm. even though they had these extra people involved. But what was absolutely astonishing was that they lived longer. Oh, my God, that's incredible. OK, so there's something about being able to live well, feel well mm. and live your best life and when you're well. not being brutalised yeah. by treatment that is no longer going to help to extend your life but is going to make you feel more unwell. And probably the ingredient of the palliative care service was to be able to say at each point, OK, so they're giving you a choice about escalating your treatment now. Let's look at the pros and cons of that. Wow, that's incredible. Mm. That's so, really so actually, incredible. there are other studies that don't show the same uh, life prolonging mm. effect. There are some that also do. It depends on the different types yeah, of yeah. 
of, of diseases that you're looking at, but the idea that it's cost-effective, helps people yeah. to be comfortable and doesn't shorten their lives is a really important part yeah, of what people you're not, need to know. Yeah, you're not coming in to <laughs> take time away. Or they're not giving up yeah. by saying, yes, I'll have symptom management as well, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, Catherine, thank you so much. What a story to end on. That's uplifting and brilliant and yeah the book is called with the end in mind how to live and die well by Catherine mannix thank you for coming to talk to me thank you so much thank loved you. it you can follow Catherine on twitter and instagram at dr Catherine mannix that's d-r-k-a-t-h-r-y-n-m-a-n-n-i-x she's also on facebook if you type in Catherine mannix you can head to her website with the end in mind.co.uk and her book is obviously available to buy in paperback now you can follow us on twitter and instagram at the Griefcast. the show was edited by kate holland with thanks to whistledown studios and the music was provided by the glue ensemble and remember you are not alone <laughs>